One of the great things about being a new Christian is passion. New Christians have this kind of passion because they know that God didn't give them what they deserved. They understand that they've been living for themselves and for their own glory. And God, again, didn't give them what they deserved. Instead, he gives them salvation, gives them forgiveness. And they're passionate. They're fired up. You know what this is like if you're a Christian. Because you were once a new Christian. And and there's something amazing about it. I like to be around new Christians for that reason. But at the same time, oftentimes, not every time, coupled with this passion and this this desire to, to honor Christ out of thanksgiving, coupled with that oftentimes is immaturity. To use some biblical terminology, there is zeal, but not according to knowledge. You're just ready to run in all four directions for the glory of Christ, but you don't really know what you're doing. Or to use other biblical terms, uh, you, you find yourself because you're not taught. Maybe you're not good in, a, in a good church that's helping you to learn. You don't have good teaching in your life. You're tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine, Ephesians chapter 4 says. And so while you're zealous and passionate, you don't know a lot. You're not in a place where you're getting taught a lot. And so you're very unstable in immaturity. And then sometimes making it even worse is you're left alone in that. And that becomes almost maturity for you. And there are plenty of people who are left alone in that state, and that just becomes status quo, and there's never any real kind of maturity. And then what happens sometimes is such a person walks through those doors. I've been that guy before. Some of you have been that guy or that gal. You know God has saved you, you know He's forgiven you, and you are thrilled about it, and you're willing to do anything and everything. In fact, you're willing to do extra biblical things because that seems like the right thing to do, and you're excited, but that's part of your immaturity. And then, all of a sudden, you come to a place where there are mature Christians, and it's a recipe for trouble. Having immature Christians... And mature Christians together is a recipe for major conflict. Mature Christians who have known what the gospel is and they've allowed it to permeate their life and their thinking and it's transformed them over the years and they've been taught and they've stabilized and they might be zealous but it's according to knowledge. And then you've got immature Christians who might be passionate but they don't know much and there's conflict. So what do we do? (laughs) I guess we could have immature churches and mature churches. Let's do a church plant. Who's going to go to the immature one? (laughs) We could have separate services. I think sometimes churches almost kind of do that. We could have an immature service and a mature service. But the fact of the matter is the Lord Jesus Christ, whose opinion matters, his opinion is the only one that matters at the end of the day, the Lord Jesus Christ wants mature Christians and immature Christians as part of the same church where they can learn and grow and mature together. And that is what Romans 15, 1-6 is about. So if you have a Bible, if you haven't already turned there, turn to Romans 15. We're going to learn about how we're to work together as mature and immature. And in Romans 15, 1-6, the emphasis is on you if you're mature. So if you're a mature Christian, you have a unique responsibility to 
handle with care those who are less mature than you are. Now, I don't know about you, but this isn't like number one or even 100 on my list of sermons I want to preach or hear. I would really like to hear a sermon. If I could choose, I think on my iPod, I'm going to dial one up on the imputation of Christ's righteousness. I love that, that his righteousness is credited to me by faith. Maybe one on justification, maybe one on sanctification, maybe one on God's grace in salvation, maybe one on perseverance through the Holy Spirit, maybe something, but high on my list is not a sermon on how immature people and mature people need to get along in the local church. More than likely, you're kind of like me. Maybe because it hurts, maybe because it doesn't seem to be relevant or really pressing. But the Lord Jesus Christ, who bought the church with his own blood, says it's important. So important that it's in the book of Romans. And so my prayer has been that we would see it as important today and I would preach it with all of my heart and that by the grace of God you would receive it with all of your heart so that we might glorify Christ by getting along with each other because it's a priority whether we think it is or not. So I'm wanting us to see it as a priority in this very passage we're going to look at together. It's not enough to live your Christian life the way you want to on your own. The Lord Jesus Christ calls, to live, calls us to live our Christian lives, yes, alone, but alone together. Both are important. Both are important. So let's start working our way through this passage, hoping and praying for conviction, for encouragement that God would transform the life of Omaha Omaha Bible Church as well as our lives as individuals. Beginning in verse 1, we read these words. We who are strong. So if there's any doubt about where Paul was in chapter 14, we know he now is one of the strong because he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And let's just pause and take it in. It's addressed to you if you're a strong Christian. We'll talk about what that means in just a moment. You have a unique responsibility toward weak Christians or less mature Christians. And to not just live for yourself, as easy as that is for us. Now, let's remind ourselves, weak and strong, what's he talking about? Chapter 14 is where this was covered. Just quickly, let's review what we've seen in chapter 14. Who are the strong Christians? Who are the weak Christians? Because sometimes we get them actually reversed, and we think, especially if we're weak Christians, we think we're strong Christians. Because we think we're strong Christians, even though we're weak Christians. Because we not only do what the Bible says, we add extra rules and regulations. We're so faithful. Sarcasm, sarcasm, sarcasm. Actually, that's the immature Christian. Let's see that in chapter 14. In chapter 14, verse 2, it said, One person believes he may eat anything. And that's the, that's the strong one, actually. While the weak, that's how we know it's a strong one, person eats only vegetables. So if you're a vegetarian, we're going to do an altar call and you should repent of your image. No, I'm totally kidding. He's not talking about that issue. The context would be a religious purpose reason. Because of whatever background you're coming from, because of your mental associations with the culture, you think you shouldn't eat certain kinds of meats. And so you're going to take the high road and you're just going to say, I'll only have vegetables. Because I know where that meat's come from. I know the... 
association. And so I'm, I'm going to abstain. And here he says, actually, one person believes he may eat anything. And that, that, that's the strong one. So when you mature and you grow in the gospel and you understand not only did God save you from your sin in the gospel, which is the gospel, the good news that Christ lived, died, and rose again from the dead, not only do you believe that, it's, it's had time to, to, to settle down in your soul. You, you understand the gospel well enough to know now that it is not about food. It is not about what you eat now. It is not about what you drink now. It's not about what you avoid now as far as food or drink or whatever. You know what? It's about what Christ did. And that's freeing. And if you're a mature Christian, you understand that it's so about what he did that it, quite frankly, is not about what I do. It's not extra rules and regulations. It's not about that at all. And so... Let's keep reading just to remind ourselves without re-preaching the whole sermon. Verse 5, one person, context would be the weak or the immature Christian, esteems one day as better than another. So you have to observe certain holy days or, or holidays and have certain significance, maybe having to do with food, maybe not with food. That's the one person. While another, in the context of the mature, esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And as we saw last time, he... He makes it clear that a day is a day is a day is a day. And food is a food is a food is a food. But immature Christians need time to come to those convictions. You don't want them to violate their conscience. Okay, down to verse 14. Who are the strong Christians? Who are the weak Christians? I know, Paul says, and am persuaded. So double emphasis in the Lord Jesus in the gospel, in the context of Christ's work, that nothing is unclean in itself. And that's what I encourage you to underline. Nothing is unclean in itself. The Apostle Paul, the mature Christian, says there's nothing that is inherently bad. If you can say that, then you're a mature Christian to one degree or another. Do you believe there's absolutely nothing that in and of itself, though it could be abused and used wrongly, Nothing in and of itself is bad. Paul's saying that. And that's what a mature Christian thinks. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Again, an immature Christian shouldn't partake if they still think somehow it's a religious violation. They need to mature. Verse 20 then says, partway through the verse, everything. So I underline 14, nothing. Now in 20, everything is indeed clean but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Nothing unclean. Everything is clean. This is how you see the world. This is your worldview if you're a mature Christian. I've not always thought that way. Many of you, I know, because of relationships and interaction, have not always thought that way. I'm sure some of you right now don't think that way. That's okay. You're still in the right place. Go back and listen to the sermon on Romans 14. It might help. But for those who understand that nothing in and of itself is unclean, everything in and of itself is actually clean because we understand the gospel, where we're going to go now is you can't wear that as a badge on your sleeve that you beat people up with, okay? You can't live impatiently with immature Christians. You can't somehow not give a hoot about what they think in their immaturity. That wouldn't be right. 
And so that's what we're looking at this morning in chapter 15, verse 1. We can't use our liberty and use it thoughtlessly or selfishly. Uh, again, I direct your attention to verse 1 of chapter 15. We who are strong, so we see everything in and of itself is good, nothing in and of itself is bad, have an obligation. Okay, So you have an obligation if you're that kind of person to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Doug Moo, in his helpful commentary on Romans, offers a synonym for weak that might help you. Weak is a fine word to use, but he uses a synonym, incapable. There are those who are just incapable of doing certain things, even though the Bible doesn't say it's bad, because of maybe background, some kind of baggage, religious or otherwise. And we need to bear with them. We have an obligation I like the word that he uses for we need to bear with them. It's different than saying, you know what? (laughs) As inconvenient as it is, we need to put up with them. It's more positive. We need to bear with them. Uh, We we need to be empathetic. We might use that word. We we need to feel what what it's like to be that person. And you might be able to feel it, like I say, because you may have been that person. And so instead of just saying, oh, yeah, here we go again, brother indifference it's I've been there before in that state and so I, I, I want to feel the pain of, of not knowing what it's like to know that there's nothing inherently bad and everything is inherently good and in the gospel ultimately we're trusting in Christ anyway so my friends if you're a mature Christian as outlined in the passage you need to know that you have a unique obligation a gospel-wrought obligation to not live for your own pleasure and do whatever you want in front of whoever I want to do it. You're, you're bearing that burden which is going to cause you to be sensitive. It's going to cause you to show compassion. It's going to cause you to show love toward that person. That's where it is for us as a church. And this isn't theoretical. The day this becomes theoretical at Omaha Bible Church would mean everyone here is mature. I'd like to see that. Uh, (laughs) Which would be problematic because if we were all mature, we would also be evangelizing and there would be new people coming. I mean, as long as we are at least 5% healthy as a church, we're going to have mature and immature people and we've got to know this. This is rubber meets the road kind of stuff. How do you carry yourself? How do you handle yourself if you know these things? It is exciting to know freedom. It's awesome. You know, it's just awesome to say, you know what? I'm free. I'm free from legalism. I'm free from the baggage. Oh, this is all. And I want to tell people about the freedom. There's a right place to tell them. There's a wrong place too. They're going to violate their conscience. That would be a wrong place. So I, I, want to, I want to have us see this as real life where we are as a church. He goes on to unpack this a little bit about what we've already really been seeing. But in verse 2, let each of us, still addressing the strong, it would seem, in the context, let each of us please his neighbor. Sometimes in the Bible, people-pleasing is a bad thing, like in Galatians. Here, different kind of context. 
amongst believers who understand the gospel, even though they might not understand the, 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 the deepness of implications. We should be people pleasers. When it's right to be a people pleaser, it's when you're with an immature Christian and so you don't flaunt your freedom that says, all I care about is my own pleasure. You're actually seeking their pleasure for them to have a good experience, for them to enjoy themselves in Christ, in your presence, that it's not a bad thing to be around you, that it's a good thing. They like to be around you. You're a more mature Christian. Because you're handling yourself carefully. Let each of us please his neighbor. And no doubt when I think, he, I think when he uses the neighbor word, we know what he's talking about. Anybody who has any kind of biblical literacy whatsoever, when you're talking about your obligation to your neighbor, you know where he's going. Think second greatest commandment. And this is just ABC stuff. Second greatest commandment is that we would love our neighbor. And so we, of all people, as Christians, living with other Christians, should be committed to handling our neighbor the right way. I think that's what he's getting at. This is a love issue. Then he continues on in verse 2. You can notice there, for his good to build him up. For his good to build him up. You want to please your neighbor for his good to build him up. This is loving them, even though they're less mature than you are. Your desire is to help them to grow, not to prove a point or to have personal pleasure. This means you're patient, right? As much as you might want to just lock and load and blow them out of the water. Grow up. (laughs) No, it's not the approach he's taking. Got to give it time. Got to give them room. You're not going to be mature in a day. If you're really a mature Christian, you know that you didn't grow up spiritually in a day. Take some time. If you hire a personal trainer tomorrow and day one is two and a half hours of heavy lifting, that's unreasonable. That's dumb. Fire that trainer, right? They might want to show off and show you everything they know, but actually they've shown you that they're not very good and not very capable. Day one of a class, you don't tell them all the hardest things up front. You've got to build upon, build upon, build upon, and give them some room. We use this in other ways in life, but somehow when I arrive at maturity... In the sense, we've not, none of us have arrived, but there is a place where you can come to the maturity level of least understanding issues of conscience. I need to remember that it didn't just happen like that. And it'll affect the way I treat you. And it'll make a difference in the life of Omaha Bible Church. Remember, that he's not talking about biblical issues black and white, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, abuse of good things, for example. He's talking about these issues that are non-biblical issues. We might call them gray areas, issues of conscience. There's something in me, though, right, that wants to take weak Christians by the collar and go, grow up! You know? Anybody else feel that way, or do I just need to resign? 
You want, you want to say, this, this is the cross. Don't you understand? Don't you understand? It's all about what Christ has done. Don't, don't you get it? So not about extraordinary rules and regulations. It's hard. I want to say to people, all right, isn't, is it Lent now? It's close. Would you just eat a filet on Friday? That's what I want to say. <laughs> Come on, man. Haven't you read the Bible? Don't you understand it's all of what he's done? Or someone out of cultural fundamentalism, I want to say, well, would you just order a glass of Merlot and get over it? Don't you know the Bible says in Psalm 104 that wine is a good gift from God given to make the heart glad? What is your problem? Somebody else, I want to say, and while you're at it, would you just order a cigar? Get over it. And the list could go on. But I'm not going to do that. Doesn't mean I'm not going to teach Psalm 104. Doesn't mean I'm not going to teach 1 Timothy 4, 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, doesn't mean I'm not going to remind people that Jesus said it's what goes, it's not what goes in a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of him. It's his heart. It's not tobacco. And the list could go on. I want to say, get over it. These cultural sins that aren't sins in the Bible. But I'm not going to do that with that kind of strident kind of attitude. What do I need to do? Live for their pleasure. I, I, I want their being around me to be a pleasant experience. <laughs> I can do that. I can talk about Christ. And in the right time, I can talk about passages. But ultimately, as a Christian, I'm supposed to love my neighbor, not beat them up with these issues. So if I know you struggle with the issue, I don't mind ordering fish. It's okay. I don't mind not ordering the glass of Merlot. I don't have to wear it on my shirt sleeve. I don't have to smoke a cigar because I don't like it. But if I did, I don't need to prove the point then and there. I can give room and space and time. Okay? This is a sermon directed toward mature Christians. If you're immature and you're thinking, I hate this guy so badly because he mentioned those three big sins, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be a jerk. It just comes naturally. <laughs> I'm naming these things because I really want mature Christians to get it. I really want immature Christians to get it too. We are not about these things. We are about Christ. And in and of, it, in and of themselves, there's nothing unclean. Everything is clean. They can be used badly. But you can use them badly, your freedoms, if you wear it on your shirt sleeve and say, look at me and my freedoms. You dumb, immature Christian. But we do that sometimes. Let's not do that. 
Let's not do that. Let's not do that because we might know where we've come from. Because I've so been that guy. I'm so glad for Christians that didn't just lock and load on me. I'm eventually glad they took me behind the woodshed and talked some sense into me. <laughs> there's a time. But we've got to be careful. But you know what? There's a better motivation. Yes, let's be careful with people who still have sort of uber right-wing fundamentalist kind of tendencies or religious tendencies uh, that, that causes them to see certain things as bad and not bad, uh, uh, certain things as bad that aren't bad. Let's appreciate it because we may have come from that background. But there's even a better reason. There's even more motivation. And it's in verse 3. I love this. Verse 3 says, For Christ did not please himself. You know, my motivation here is not just because I used to be that person and people were patient, so I should be patient. You know, the ultimate reason why we should be careful with our freedom, the ultimate reason is because of the gospel. Christ. Christ didn't please himself. I want to please myself, and so I flaunt my freedoms, but I need to remember if I'm a Christian, that means I'm a follower of Christ because of what he's done for me. And so when it says, jumping off the page, Christ did not please himself. Hello, Pat, reality check. Maybe you need to take that badge off your sleeve and put it in your pocket. Because when Jesus came here, he came here not for his own pleasure. He came here to suffer. He came here to give himself up for us. Not the mature, not just the immature, but the offensive sinners. I've got to remember that. See, what we do is we forget the gospel, right? I know you hear it all the time and you think, oh, here we go again. Yeah, <laughs> here we go again. Right? When I take my freedoms and wear it on my shirt sleeve, Pat, as mature as he thinks he is, has actually shown that he's so mature, he's forgotten the gospel. That's not mature. i got to remember, Christ didn't please himself. Oh, so as I'm trying to imitate Christ because I'm grateful for what he's done for me, my life isn't just characterized by self-pleasure. i got to be careful. Right? And by the way, the immature need the gospel too to understand. <laughs> you need to know, understand the gospel that it is so not about adding extra rules and regulations and that you carry that too far, you've shown you don't really even get the gospel. So however you slice it, let's just go back to the gospel again and 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 again. And again. <laughs> you see? And then he, quote, he goes on to give us a text from the Old Testament, Psalm 69, proving his point. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. What's he saying there? The reproaches of those who reproached you, you being God the Father, fell on me, God the Son. The, the, the people who were against you, God, they show that they were against you and who they take it out on. They took it out on me, the Son. Jesus didn't come here for pleasure. He came here to submit to the will of the Father, to fulfill the plan of the triune God, but he came here most certainly, we should know, to suffer. And to do so for the glory of God. So think about it. I really want to take pleasure in my freedoms in Jesus. 
And I do. We should be people who could say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Read 1 Corinthians 10 sometimes. Sometime. Demons? Demons are nothing. We're so, we're so free in Christ. Find out where they sell demon meat and buy it. Mmm. Tastes good. Really. He really pushes it. I, I, I do want to find pleasure and freedom in Jesus. I want you to. But there's a right place and a right time and a wrong place and a wrong time because we're trying to be Christ-like and so we are not exercising ourselves in all of these pleasures if it's going to mean an immature or weak Christian is not being loved. It's pretty practical stuff. If you don't think it's practical, you probably haven't interacted with people very much. (laughs) Really practical for the life of OBC. Then verse 4. takes a little bit of a detour, but... Not entirely. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. And through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Let's do a little exercise here. First, let's take verse 4 and let's take it out of context. And I think we legitimately can. I don't mean in a bad sense. But let's just assume like we haven't, let's assume we haven't read anything yet and it would stand alone. So let's just appreciate it for what it says in and of itself. Whatever was written in former days, what would that be? Old Testament. He just quoted the Old Testament, so no doubt he means Old Testament. Was written for our instruction. What? He's writing to Christians. The Old Testament was written, it was written for different reasons too. He'll cover that later. But it was written for our instruction? Huh. I don't know about you, but I don't usually think of the Old Testament that way. The Old Testament was written for our instruction. I think we should read our Old Testament that way because he says it right here. Keep reading. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, talking about the Old Testament, we might have hope. (laughs) That's a pretty fascinating verse about the Old Testament for Christians. Now I think we should come back to our context probably a couple of reasons he uses it here. The second one I'm more sure of. One reason he may have used it here is think about the greater context. In chapter 14, he says, no food laws. Everything is clean. Nothing is unclean. Hear that as a Jewish person. Looking at Sue, because she was just in Israel. She goes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No food laws? Everything's clean? Nothing unclean? Yeah, that's right. Because it's all fulfilled in Christ who kept the law perfectly for us. It wouldn't take much to think that the Old Testament is irrelevant, therefore. Some people have done that historically. The most famous man in the second century, Marcion, Marcion, you might say, rejected all the Old Testament. He went even further and rejected everything other than the writings of Paul. So he didn't read Paul very closely because Paul was affirming the Old Testament. 
sort of like a, a preliminary version of hyper-dispensationalism where they say only Paul's teachings are relevant. He was a heretic. He missed verses like this. Yes, fulfilled in Christ. Yes, everything is clean. But that doesn't mean you should throw away your Old Testament. In fact, it's very, very valuable to bring encouragement and to bring hope. How about for starters, because we read about God's fidelity. We read about God's faithfulness. He always keeps His Word. Again and again and again, He keeps His Word. That brings encouragement. That brings hope. But I think there's actually even another reason why He uses it specifically here, and that is to show the significance of Christ that we have Christ, the fulfillment of these things. We have, uh, have, have Christ as Christians. We should be so blown away by having Christ. And we read about him in the Old Testament, which is something that we can do clearly that they couldn't necessarily do so clearly, that we should be so blown away with these things that getting along is not an issue. Look with me if you would. Look at it again. If you look at 3 and 4 together. For Christ did not please himself. Okay, that's, he's talking about the practical implication of Christ's work when it comes to our ethics. But as it is written, so he's quoting the Old Testament, the reproaches of those who repro- reproached you fell on me. Psalm 69. For whatever, he's going to explain it in verse 4, for whatever was written in former days, like Psalm 69, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I actually think, and he's going to talk about it even more, but I actually think what he's doing is he's saying, do do you realize what we have? (laughs) This is amazing what we have in the scriptures. We of all people should just be thrilled beyond belief and beyond measure. What was shadowy, what was dark, is so clear. Christ is the fulfillment of all of these things. And now you, like other people haven't been able to do, you can go back and read your Old Testament. Pointing to Christ. Pointing to Christ. Pointing to Christ. Pointing to God's faithfulness to provide a Messiah. God's saving powers. And before you know it, man, we don't just have the four Gospels to learn about the Gospel. We not only have the New Testament to learn about the Gospel, we have the whole Bible to learn about the Gospel. And that causes us to remember Christ didn't please Himself. Isn't He a great Savior? We have the Gospel. Which takes us back to this, I'm a mature Christian, I live for myself. Pleasure. Of all people, I should know that I've got a whole Bible that points to Christ giving himself for us and God's faithfulness in saving his people through that. You you need to remember the gospel and I need to remember the gospel. And we've got gospel data at our fingertips all over the place. And it's what will cause us to get along or not get along because we don't take it seriously. reminds us of the greatness of the gospel. As one person put it, reading the Old Testament and seeing its fulfillment in Christ and the church fosters the believer's hope, a hope that is accompanied by the ability to bear up under the pressure of spiritually hostile and irritating circumstances. Mature with immature. We have Christ, so this stuff doesn't really matter. 
Then he continues on. He gives a prayer, uh, a prayer wish, some people have said. So he's teaching even in his prayer. This continues on the theme in verse 15 where he says, May the God of endurance, who you read about in the Old Testament, that's who he was just talking about. May the God of endurance and encouragement, we just read about that in the previous verse, grant you to live in such harmony with one another, that's weak and strong, in accord with Christ Jesus, in accord with the gospel, because of what the gospel has done in your life, and because you understand and see the gospel everywhere, verse 6, that, here's the ultimate reason, that together you may, that's together weak and strong, you may with one voice, as if we're singing a song together, with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't it even just sound good? It's culminating. You know what I want for you guys? That you, you, you would be as if you're singing together. Perfect harmony together. Because of the gospel. That, that, that's what it is. That's what I desire of you. That we're together immature and mature as part of the church. This is a priority for Christ. And so Paul is saying, I'm praying for you believers that this could be a reality for you. It's just glorious. What else could unite us? Let's just be unified. Legalism can't unite us because we might have different laws. Your opinion, my opinion, it's self-authority is what legalism ends up being. We can never really get along. We're all mature. That's what causes us to get along. Well, that's an impossibility. We're all immature. That's another impossibility. We're not going to get along. The one thing that can unite us is the gospel. Being enamored, overwhelmed, impressed, clear on what the gospel is. And then amidst all the weirdness, against all the different places we are in life, we can get along. I can get along with anybody who's a Christian who has any understanding of these things. Is how it should be, at least. I want to end by having you retrace some of our steps in Romans. Then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Romans 1, Romans 5, Romans 11, and then Romans 15. You don't need to look the passages up. You can jot them down if you want to. But I want to retrace something with you that becomes very, very important for us as a church in fitting all this together. The theme I want to highlight for you is the glory of God, okay? The end for which God created the world, as Jonathan Edwards said. The glory of God, the ultimate reason for everything, the end for which God created the world. Our problem as sinners is the glory of God. In Romans chapter 1, we learned that. The whole reason that there's been a fall, the whole reason we're in a hostile relationship with God as unbelievers is because of the glory of God. Because we would not acknowledge God as God. We would not acknowledge the supremacy of God. Romans chapter 1 said it this way. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Romans one twenty one, Romans one twenty three. they exchanged the glory of the immortal God. This, the glory of God is our biggest problem. 
God is our biggest problem because God says, I'm God, treat me like God and everything will be okay. And we didn't. And we don't. Then, we're under the wrath of God because we reject the glory of God, Romans 1.18. But then we keep reading, we learn about the gospel, the good news that God Pardon sinners, that God justifies sinners through the work of His Son. And all of a sudden, we have a restored relationship with God. And now we're not busy robbing Him of glory. Because of the gospel, we are now restored in our relationship. And so we are actually doing what we were created to do. We're giving God glory. Romans chapter 5 verse 2 put it this way. Through Him, that is through Christ, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And here's the part I wanted you to hear. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There's been such a transformation because of Christ where we were against the glory of God, trying to be glory grubbers for ourselves, which led to being under God's wrath. Now because of restoration in Christ, now we have a total change and now we find ourselves, as it says here, rejoicing in the glory of God. To the point where this affects us so much, if we're like the Apostle Paul, that the Apostle Paul, by the time he gets to Romans chapter 11, verse 36, he says this, To Him be glory forever. And if you're a Christian, then that's your mindset. No longer are you against God's glory trying to get it for yourself, but because of the gospel, you're saying, I I rejoice in the glory of God. To Him be glory forever. This is what the gospel does. And now you can do what you were made to do. The end for which God created the world. It's great. And here's where I wanted us to go today in ending. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Your Christian living, glorifying God, is not about you and your iPod and good sermons and your Bible. Because you and Jesus are like this, man. It's not less than that. But it's more than that. Because when we get to Romans 15, verse 6, our verse, we learn this isn't just personal glorifying God. This is corporate glorifying God. And together, verse 6 says, that's corporate, that's church talk. And together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's not just an individual thing, although it is an individual thing, it's a corporate thing. And this is being driven home here, and I want to drive it home as someone who's trying to echo the Scripture. Praise God you're glorifying Him on your own. But to live the Christian life is to not live alone. Read the Bible and find out where Christian living happens. Read the Bible and find out where Christian growth happens. Read the Bible and find out where all of these things happen. And when you read the New Testament, they happen in the context of local churches with immature Christians and mature in the same place. How in the world are we going to do this? We're going to do this because of the gospel. And we're going to need to be reminded again and again and again and again. 
but we're going to do this together. So I don't know where you are. Some of you get this. Some of you don't get it. It's time to get it. You're in the right place. It's not just you and Jesus, although it's not less than that. Don't be the, the guy who seeks to glorify God on your own, but not in the context of other believers or the gal that does that. And if you know this, by God's grace, help other Christians who might be immature in this way to understand this. That we're called to be together. Not all the time, but certainly at strategic times, to benefit together. Don't be the person who walks in and walks out never to connect with other Christians in the local church. Don't be that person. It's not right. It's not fitting. It's not what God saved you for. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you didn't just do the sermon download on iTunes. But don't have this be your physical downloading. Together. You say, but you know what? We don't see eye to eye on everything, all those other kinds of issues. Yeah, that's kind of the point of Romans 15. To work together, to show maturity, to show immaturity, to show how about how great the gospel is because it can cause us to get along with each other regardless where we are on the continuum. That's my earnest prayer today. We get the gospel and get the gospel and get the gospel some more that we would live and die for the glory of Christ, no matter where we are in, in maturity. Let's pray, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for time in your word together as your people. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that he didn't come once we were lovely, because it never would have happened. We're so grateful for that great, great, clear statement that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so, Lord, I pray now for mature Christians who are here at Omaha Bible Church that they would be Christ-like in their demeanor. I pray for immature Christians, less mature Christians, that they would be Christ-like in their demeanor as well, that we would glory in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation and that it would transform the way we think, the way we talk, the way we believe, the way we interact with each other, that we would be characterized by love and that it would make a profound statement and testimony to us, to you, to the angels, to the watching world around us about the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.